Hello and welcome to the Six Degrees of John Keel podcast. This is Barbara, and with me tonight is Morgana. Hello. I'm not going to introduce us because you know who we are. Uh, it's just us tonight, and uh, we decided that we should maybe talk about how the other and our conception of the other was influenced by fictional works, because... While we do not get our fairy lore from fanfic, it can't help but affect how we see and experience the other. Which I think makes sense because I think there's an imaginative connection with the other. Um, I think, you know, Keel talked about how it has reflective capabilities. But I also think there is just how we perceive it is based more in an imaginative and sensory capacity almost. Like Mm -hmm. it's more, it comes from a place of feelings and impressions and that murky, squishy, subconscious, unconscious interplay with the real world. And I think that the fiction that we read and consume and the popular culture that we, you know, are familiar with can help our imagination give shape to something as amorphous as the other. Exactly. And it's not just going to be books. It's also going to be movies, TV shows, and artists, art books, probably music as well. I, they, if it happens, it happens. Uh, Or we'll come back and do another one with music. But you can't talk about fairies without talking about Brian Froud. So no, you you can't. It's just, it's just not done. No. Uh, Or Tam Lin speaking of music. Yes. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Uh, So in my, in my case, I think the first stories that I read that seemed like they were talking about something that was rooted in the real world, that was rooted in the material world that I lived in, that also had some inklings and feelings of the other, was probably the stories of Edgar Allan Poe, that my mother gave me when I was in fourth grade, and then I got in trouble taking it to school. Uh, Because, you know, she was like, well, I read it when I was a kid, but I think she was probably older, and she didn't remember that, you know, other people had different ideas as to what's appropriate to read. But, you know, even though he wrote in the 19th century, his writing is very immediate and very visceral. Yeah, like his description is, is a great word for it. <laughs> yeah, his description is very, very clear, and uh, it 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 has all of the senses engaged. And even though I was a really sweet, gentle child, for whatever reason, I really loved those stories. I think I loved the way he he told the stories, the way he wrote, uh, which is. That, you know, I think that was my first step into, you know, my goth phase at, at age 11, you know. Actually, I think I was younger. I was probably nine. And then I also really, really enjoyed 
the works of Ray Bradbury. And I'm not yeah. talking about the cute works of Ray Bradbury. I'm talking about the October Country, uh, the smallest assassin. Uh, let's see. Golden uh, Apples of the Sun with the Velt. The, sun. the Velt is just one of my favorite stories ever. And even though it's basically a science fiction story, uh, describe the the concept of it. Okay, so this this to me, I think, is why I have a conception of the other as, you know, you have this communicativeness of imagination. It's almost contagious. Um, yeah. Is because I was also obsessed with Ray Bradbury at a young age. And I loved things that were macabre and I loved scary stories. Um, and not just because, you know, mom got me Edgar Allan Poe in like third grade too, but I think I found Ray Bradbury myself. Yeah. A bunch of my books were still at your grandmother's house. So yeah. Um, I think I, I stumbled across Bradbury and my grandfather who was a scientist was, and loved science fiction and horror was like, oh yes, yes, I will buy you all of these. <laughs> bless him he would buy me whatever books I wanted um, which was a lot of them and the Velt is essentially there is a playroom for this couple's children that is interactive the walls and there's a machine in the walls that makes a pseudo reality for them to play in and one of the ones that they played in was the savannah and there are lions and the children love it. And gradually the parents notice more and more of the time that kids are spending time in their playroom. And a big part of Bradbury is the, I'm, what's the right word? The, the, not the savagery of children, but the uncanniness of children. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He, he's not as bad as, you know, Lord of the Flies per se. No, because he doesn't think all kids are evil, but he's like, children occupy this magical space, and that magic isn't just like, oh, pretty cute magic. It's like murders. Like, even in Dandelion Wine, there is a serial killer Yes, for a chapter yes. of the book. Yes. Um, and that remains one of my favorite Ray Bradbury books ever. It's, a, it's essentially a coming-of-age story, but it's like the best coming-of-age story ever. Yes. Um, but anyway, something wicked this way comes does a, a similar thing yes, in a different it does different realm. Cecily is just a great character. Um, but they notice they're spending more time in their playroom, and finally, the parents are like, "Okay, we're turning this off. You guys are getting weird. You're getting secretive." And they go into the room and they can't find their kids. And so they go into the vault. And Bad idea. Then it's real. Yeah. And the lions eat them. Yep. I'm pretty they, sure. Like it's they implied do. heavily that the lions eat them. And the children are giggling because they've become masters of this new reality. Yes. That's within, how it happens. Within their real reality they've become the masters of this imaginary realm that's helped to be created through technology but that te technology was then influenced through the children's imaginations themselves and i think 
I think that that really is the crux to me of that contagion of the imagination that is that interplay between the other and popular culture. And they do reflect each other. Like we've we've talked about that in random episodes about UFOs, but I think the humans make stories and our stories help give concepts shape and our imaginations help bridge that gap between whatever strange thing we're seeing and the face we ascribe to it. And I think it's really fiction plays a very important role in expanding our imaginations and giving them colors. Right. You know, the, the uh, Ray Bradbury story, the Velt, to sort of go back to it, even though it's science fiction and this was a mechanical virtual reality room, kind of like in Star Trek, the next generation, uh, but kind of like in Star Trek, the next generation, you have this great technology that then goes awry. You know, something happens and it goes awry. The way I always read into it was there was something outside that connected with the kids or something within the kids that connected with the machine. But there was something that got into the machine through the children and it began to shape itself. Yeah. And because they were shaping it, their imagination, their belief was so strong, they made it real. Um, yes, because the lions never eat the children. No, because they belong to the children. So, and the children belong to them. So, why should they eat them? Right. Exactly. Um, and really, I think when I think of the other, I do think of the October Country, and I do think of something wicked this way comes. Mm -hmm. And to, in a tongue-in-cheek way, I think of my own family when I think of those two because (laughs) we're we're the Athens family. It's like the Adams family, but with colors. Um, Yeah, yeah. Not that many more colors, but colors. Yeah. Well, there's colors in the in the house, not necessarily on the persons. Lots of us wear black, but yeah, that is that is kind of how I see it as well. That that you know, we're the weird family on the street uh, that has crows that, you know, sit on our house all the time and all kinds of strange stuff. But that, and then there's, in addition to Edgar Allan Poe and Ray Bradbury being two big ones, then there's your favorite, not my favorite, but... Oh, good old HP? Yeah, good old HP. I I like him, but I don't adore him like you do, but... Very similarly to you, he gave me a a new way to perceive things. I will say that H.P. Lovecraft himself was a horrible person. He was terrible. And he's racist as hell. And only the fact that his estate gets no money from his books makes me feel at all okay about reading them. Yeah. Um, And the fact that he spawned an entire genre of horror. um, And you you could also, you know, say that Edgar Allan Poe had a thing for way too young girls. Including his cousin. Ooh. Um, Yeah. 
But the man could write cosmic horror, and it was H.P. Lovecraft at age 11 that hammered the that that the concept dawned on me um, that humans were entirely bound by their perception. Yes. And that there could be so much more to reality that our senses just could not perceive. Mm -hmm. And behind our ordinary mundane things, there might be seething, boiling, you know, twisting vats of cosmic power, energy, and horrible things just waiting to break in on reality in any given moment. With which tentacles. is a with tentacles, which is a lot for like an 11 year old kid to suddenly realize. And, you know, I, st I was very unnerved for about a week. I remember, you know, looking at out of the corner of my eye at the walls of my classrooms in school being like, okay, What's is on something, the other side? Is something gonna <laughs> ooze through there. Um, and, but that really, without that, fictional door opening to that concept I don't know how long it would have taken me to come to that realization mm -hmm. which I think that is the power of fiction and of imagination um, I think without imagination not only do we struggle to you know achieve mundane practical physical things like it took imagination to fly to the moon. It also takes imagination to wrap your brain around philosophy, to wrap your brain around, you know, art and literature. Like you, without imagination, we really would be very boring and <laughs> our lives would be very empty. Yeah. You know, the, the thing about HP and, uh, to a lesser extent, H.G. Wells, because H.G. Wells did that for me as well, War of the Worlds, which, of course, ends. Okay, I'm going to give a spoiler, y'all. If you haven't seen the movie, and I'm not talking about the remake, I'm talking about the 1950, whatever it was movie. The good movie, one. The good one. Um, or read the book, uh, which is... H.G. Wells isn't as easy to read as as... Edgar Allan Poe or H.P. Uh, Lovecraft. I would argue but that H.P. Lovecraft is not actually easy to read. The man basically is addicted to using too many adjectives. Oh my God, the adjectives. Yes, that's true. <laughs> I forgot about the adjectives. Yeah, okay. H.G. Like, Wells is probably somewhere between Edgar Allan Poe and 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 H.P. Lovecraft leaning closer to Poe. Uh, yeah, okay. I forgot about that. See, I haven't it, read H.G. in a while. Or lots, H.P. in a while. Lots of adjectives. Like, and not all, all the of it's good. Oh, well, he was a pulp writer. Let's be real here he was he was writing pulp fiction that's what he did nothing against that lots of science fiction writers wrote pulp fiction it's okay uh but i think what hg wells taught me was that the invisible things in the world may be the only thing that save us because of course at the end of war of the worlds these horrifying aliens are defeated by the common cold by a virus that, you know, we get it all the time and it doesn't do diddly squat to us, but it kills them flat. 
you know, all of our armies, all of the things that we came up with didn't do anything, but it was that, that little tiny virus that got them. And, uh, I always thought that was like one of the best endings ever. Oh, it's yeah. like, you know, it's like, yeah, you thought you were bad there. You thought you were a big, bad person here and you got invaded and you couldn't do anything humans, but the virus, the virus got them. And, uh, it, it told me that the, the smallest things were often the most important things, that small details mean something and that they can be the, the piece of data that is missing to fix a problem, even if that problem was an invasion from space. And remember, H.G. was writing in the 19th century, so... You know, people who are like, well, you know, we see UFOs because of the space race. Nah, nah. People were talking about that stuff in the 19th century, too. Yeah. Um, John Carter of Mars is another oh, one. Oh, yeah. Edgar Rice Burroughs. Speaking of pulp <laughs> writers. Um, Jules Verne, A Journey to the Moon, I believe was Jules Verne. Uh, so, and it was also one of the first silent films. It was the, one of the first science fiction films ever made during the silent era. And almost all copies of it are, are gone. And we just have a fragment of what's left, uh, which is sad because it, the bits that I've seen of it are amazing, especially for the time period. Uh, you know, it's, it's like we both kind of got the idea that there were things beyond what our physical eyes can see, that there is something beyond the physical realm, the, the, the everyday physical manifestation of life, that there is something beyond that, that there is something that doesn't touch that, that you can't smell it or see it or hear it or feel it except in little glimpses and bits and, and bobs, you know? Yeah. And then of course I, I started learning about, you know, other universes right next door to us, you know, and that, you know, that blew my mind and I'm like, wait a minute, that's what HP was talking about. And <laughs> in a happier, less creepy way, that's what Diana Wen Jones was talking about with the Chronicles of Crestomancy. Yes. Which were a I loved Diana Wynne Jones as a child. I still love Diana Wynne Jones. She is an extremely prolific fantasy writer and she's awesome and she has a book series called The Chronicles of Crestomancy that are loose some of them are tightly related, most of them are loosely related, but it's essentially multiverse theory. Yes. Plus magic plus witches and all the different societies around all the different universes that are ruled that are they're not ruled or governed they're managed by the crestomancy yeah. by the the guy who has multiple lives all in one person he he doesn't have an equivalent across all the parallel worlds he is one person with all their lives inside of him and thus he can like move around in all the worlds. Um, and the the idea of there being the world next door 
And if you just looked, you could see it was really influential with me. And then you mix that with like the October country and you mix that with something wicked this way comes and that, you know, the, the family of all the imagine all of the werewolves and witches and vampires and ghosts and spirits that live in the world travel as leaves on the wind of fallen leaves on the wind and fall you know, just that concept of there is magic everywhere and in the mundane, in the mm -hmm. little places that you don't always think about. Maybe that's what that is. And I think without that deep well of fiction, like Bradbury and Lovecraft and Poe and H.G. Wells, because I also loved H.G. Wells and I like I love Jules Verne too. Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea is still one of my favorite books. Um, and I'm I'm sorry, I'm on Captain Nemo's side. Yeah, like, I, I'm with him whole time. I'm I'm a Nemo girl. I, I I'm yep, I'm right there. Like I'm with this guy. Um, just lets you lets you have flights of fancy and makes you start looking around it makes you look at the walls to see if you can see behind it it makes you you know poke your head out on a windy moonlit night to see if you can catch a glimpse of a winged man flying like you and start looking for this stuff yeah and we grew up in west virginia so you know it could happen uh, right <laughs> We got all kinds of ghoulies and ghosties and things that go bump in the night. Uh, so, yeah, it could happen. The The thing about all of these books, I don't want you to think that we ne we didn't have TV just because we grew up in West Virginia. Because we did. Um, we had nerds. TV. We were just yeah, nerds. We, we're just book nerds. So. <laughs> we'll, get to the, we'll get to the TV, but I will mention, because it fits in so beautifully with the this the authors we've talked about here the twilight zone yes the, not not the new one see the old one the good one with rod serling and also night gallery which was his other show uh which that one was in color night gallery was never in black and white i i actually prefer the twilight zone in black and white but it gave ideas and concepts that really just blew my mind as as a kid and then i would i would go and read books by oh let's see uh da, 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 da. what's his name what's his name i can't think of his name theodore sturgeon theodore sturgeon wrote famously wrote uh an episode of star trek but he also wrote a huge number of short stories that were mind blowing and macabre and strange. And his, his viewpoint on life, his philosophy was always ask the next question. So if you read his stories and he, he generally, he didn't answer questions in his stories. He asked them, but you get to the end and you go, well, then what happens next? Well, you're supposed to ask the next question and figure it out. And his his stories always point. It's very like Ray, Ray Bradbury, but even in a lot of ways weirder. 
Um, so they always point to other possibilities, other worlds. Um, his way of doing magic is that it, it exists in the world, but you know, he also takes the whole idea of all the worlds a stage and takes it in interestingly, literally. And so at night you have these little men who come and change the sets at night when people are sleeping and move the people to where they're supposed to be for the next day. I, That's not creepy. I, do they clean? Uh, yeah, <laughs> they do. If, if, if there's something left behind, that's not in the script, they do clean it up. So. Then I need to talk to my script writers about the state of my kitchen floor right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a problem. I actually mopped my kitchen floor. So uh, we don't have we don't have that problem over here. So maybe maybe your script writer needs to talk to mine. I don't know. No, I think my script writer is like, no, she's trapped in a bohemian comedy of errors. <laughs> of course, there's just, too many dirty dishes. And that's just what it what it's going to be like. Here we are. Uh, yeah. So okay, we both have very dark tastes in fiction. That's, yes. That's not surprising. Particularly as children. Um, yeah. I liked I liked Alice in Wonderland, but Alice in Wonderland is not light and pretty. I don't no. care what Disney says. I also loved Alice in Wonderland and was handed the book when I liked the movie. And I think I watched it one too many times at your father's house. And he was like, do you want to read the book? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, there's a book. And he was like, oh, yes, there's two books. <laughs> yep. Yep. And they're way better than this this brightly hued movie thing. Um, um, so, yeah. My which dad again is an imagination expanding idea. Like, yeah, just the the whole point of Alice in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass is to stretch your brain. Mhm. Mm exactly. And of course, she goes down a rabbit hole, so that's something that we talk about in the paranormal all the damn time. Go down the rabbit hole. You go down the rabbit hole of research. You go down the rabbit hole on a, on a topic and you just get enveloped in that topic. Or you go down the conspiracy rabbit hole and you never come back. Uh, you know, and of course, since it turns out to be a dream, which I always thought was a little bit of a cop out at the end of the book. Again, I'm spoilers, but please tell me you've... you. You can't say you haven't heard of Alice in Wonderland and you haven't bumped up across the movie or a show One of the or multiple something. movies at this point. Yeah, I know. There's so many versions of it that, I mean, she's kind of an archetype now. Yes. If you think about she is. it. You know, she and is. the White Rabbit is also an archetype. Speaking of music, yep. there's the song The White Rabbit. So, yeah, they, they are part of our pop culture to the point that they exist outside of the books. Mm -hmm. I mean, hell, they're even media. in the Matrix. Yes. Follow the yes. White Rabbit. Yes. That's true. That's um, absolutely true. But, you know, it, so even that's dark. Uh, even the fairy stories that I ended up liking turned out to be fairly dark. Uh, the very first fairy book that I that I had wasn't actually mine. It belonged to my father, 
and his younger sister. They were it was given to them in 1950 by my great aunts, and uh, it was called the Giant Golden Book of Elves and Fairies, and it was edited by Jane Werner. And it was illustrated by, what is his name? Oh, my God. Uh, he also illustrated Garth Williams. He's a very famous American illustrator. He's, he's the reason why all of my people that I paint have big eyes, because he big eyes. And his animals are always really charming, and, and the detail is, is fantastic. I but it was an oversized book. It's an oversized book. I still have the original 1950 first edition. It is falling apart. It is in pieces, but we've taped it together. And uh, I finally got it to my friend who's a book binder to repair it. But anyway, even that one with all of the pretty fairies with the little wings dancing around in fairy rings... Even with those stories, there was always an edge in the poetry and the stories of darkness to it because it has the poem called uh, The Fairies. That's all it's called. And it's written by William Allingham. And it goes, Up the airy mountain and down the rushing glen, we daren't go a-hunting for fear of little men. We folk, good folk, trooping all together, green jacket, red cap, and white owl's feather. And it talks about how these little men live on this mountain near a lake, and they, they plant thorn bushes, and you daren't mess with the thorn bushes because you'll get the biggest thorns in your bed at night. Uh, they they uh, go down to the village and they steal a little girl named Bridget, and they kept her for seven years. And then when she came back down the mountain, all of her friends and family were gone. And so she died of, of grief and they took her back again and they put her down inside the lake. And there she sleeps like the lady of the lake until she wakes, which, of course, she's not gonna because she's dead. So <laughs> even this beautiful book has the, the true darkness that is fairy in it. Um, yeah. And then, you know, people wonder why I have, you know, all of these dark nightmares and things. So, you know. And, you know, I loved traditional fairy tales, which I, I feel like in this day and age, there's been a resurgence of like pro what I would call proper fairy tales, which are mm -hmm. they're fucked up. <laughs> yeah, they are like they are disturbing. Disney tried to whitewash this so hard for like so long, but I know fairy tales are messed up. <laughs> yep. The fairy tales that the Grimm brothers originally uh, collected are messed up. Uh, the, they very seldom have actual fairies in them. Uh, no, they, they have all kinds they, of, there, there are the all things in ones. Them. Yeah. Uh, but whoever is in it is generally not a very nice person. There's there's no. giants and ogres and witches and horrible stepmothers. There's so many stepmothers and none of them are good. And it's interesting because what they're telling children... Well, first off, you have to understand they, the Grimm's fairy tales were not meant for just children. They were meant to entertain everybody. 
So the themes in it are adult. But at the same time, it kind of, the stories told how to live a good and proper life. Because if you, if you read them carefully and not the really super sanitized Victorian versions, uh, you find that, you know, you have one girl who, who goes out into the woods and she was sent out there because I don't know, they, they didn't have enough food and she ends up in the house of Mother Holly or Mother Hola. And she's this old witchy looking lady. And she she shakes her feather pillows out and that makes snow and all this. She's the queen of winter. And so she asks, the you know, she's like, I'll feed you and, and give you a place to stay if you do these tasks for me, if you help me around the house. And so the girl does. She's very good. She says, yes, mother. And she does, you know, she cleans the bedding she makes the bed she starts the fire she cooks she cleans she does all the things she needs to go to your house and and get into the she kitchen does. And get that kitchen I need, floor. I need to make myself a gingerbread house and just be like come on in kids uh, yeah <laughs> exactly i'm not gonna eat you you just you're gonna have to do some housework uh <laughs> and uh you know, she does all these things, and then at, at the end of however long, Mother Holly gives her gold and in her, well, she gives her something heavy that she puts in her apron. And she says, don't look at this until you're home. So she goes home, and she finds her mother, and her mother and her sisters think that she's been gone forever and ever and ever. Um, but, you know, to her mind, she's only been gone for a few weeks. And she opens up her apron and it's filled with gold coins. And then you have the other little girl or little boy or whatever who goes and is lazy and talks back and steals scraps from the table or steals like a straight up bowl of dripping or does something terrible, burns the th- the bread in the oven, doesn't attend to the chores and is generally terrible and Mother Holly will like pinch him on the ear and send them back. And when they open the apron, instead of a heap of gold coins, it's like scorpions. Yeah, scorpions <laughs> or something. Or snakes. I mean, not scorpions, because this these yeah, the brothers Grimm gathered these in you know Germany. Europe. It's not really scorpions, but you get but the drift. Snakes. Snakes. Gross Adders. poisonous stabby things. Yes. Uh, if, if you're lucky, there's a version where they open it and it's just leaves or poop. That's another one that, that, you know, dried, dried poop so they can start a fire with dried poop. Uh, you know, so those fairy tales, even the ones that we know from Disney are not as nice as we think they are. So I surprisingly had a taste for the the darker storytellers like Angela Carter who wrote The Bloody Chamber which is a Bluebeard story uh, she also wrote In the Company of Wolves which then later became a film which you look at the special effects now and it's kind of like oh god why don't do that but it still tells really cool stories about the very very um folklorically true werewolf stories from Europe, which is what she based that on. 
uh, Tanith Lee, another English writer, did a, a uh, two books. Uh, there's Tales from the Sisters, Red as Blood, Tales from the Sisters Grimmer, and uh, another one, I think it's just Red as Blood 2. And those are all the Grimm's fairy tales that she, and, and Charles Perrault's fairy tales from France that she rewrites in various settings and various ways. And she has a very goth sense about her. Uh, but she had such interesting takes on them. And it was it was always from a very female perspective, and it was really yeah. cool. Ellen Dalto and Terry Windling also do this. There is there's been a resurgence of the more true to fairy tales, fairy yes. tales, yes, that happened they, in my lifetime. Yeah, they edited a series of books uh, that you know I I don't remember all the the titles. I'll put them in the show notes, but it's like, uh. Let's see. Red as blood, white as snow. Um, the ivory and the horn. Yeah. Silver something, gold something. You know, it, it really black something something black thorn. Boy, I'm being really you know. It's good okay. here. <laughs> yeah, but there's this like, is what happens when we don't have like extensive notes. Yeah, this, this we're was... we're trying to remember 6,000 books. This is like... Well, I think there's 12 of them in the series. It's a huge series, and I have all of the books. They're just not in front of me. And all of them, they they got short story writers like Charles DeLint, Jane Yolen. Uh, Who is that. awesome. Jane, I don't think I've read anything by Jane Yolen that I didn't like. I also adore everything Charles DeLint has ever done. Yes, Yes, the, those two are are amazing. Uh, let's see, Midori Snyder, uh, Ellen Datlow did a lot of the stories herself. She always had at least one. Terry Windling often had at least one story in it. And that series is just fantastic. And every time one of those books came out, I was there, I was ready, and I'd grab it, you know, and and read it. Because they started coming out, think when I was in my late teens I think they're that old and then they just that spanned all into my adulthood and and into Morgana's childhood there's also like novels that are really really good about fairies and fairy lore that mm -hmm. do take uh their inspiration from actual fairy lore um I think one of my favorites is Fairy Tale by Raymond Feist, and that tells a changeling story, and it's a super creepy one. It's like, very creepy. Yeah. It's a trigger it, warning. There is a cat. It does not survive. Yeah. It's pretty bad. <laughs> yeah, it is. There's there's all kinds of, there's there's uh sexual assault in it. Uh it's just it's really, really bloody and creepy. But the Fairy Queen is very interesting, too. Um, so yes. that's that's worth reading. And War for the Oaks by Emma Bull is great. Uh, it This has to do with the Sheely and Unsheely courts from Scotland uh, having a war in, you know, I think Milwaukee 
Yeah. I think that's where it is. It's set in Milwaukee. And a woman who is a, a musician gets in the middle of it. And it has a puka in it. And it's 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 really, really well done. And it's really fun. Not quite as, as bloody and scary as fairy tale. It's a bit more lighthearted. Yeah. And then there's Woodwife by Terry Windling again. And this one's fun because she takes European fairy lore and Native American folklore and fairy lore and sort of mixes them together, but not in an, in an, in a way that's appropriative. It really, because she lived in the area that she was writing about in near Tucson. So she could describe it really, really well. And the way she described the spirits of the mountains and the desert was, I, I, I've reread that book. I don't know how many times it was fascinating. She has a really good grasp of animistic spirits. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Is the best way to explain it is that she runs with the concept of the of the fairies as animistic spirits of land. Mm -hmm. I think is, is how to explain them. And it's really good. And it, it makes the strong link between the fairies and artists and musicians and creators. Poets. And yeah, that's one of the things about it that's really, uh, it, it reaches out and grabs you. And uh, interestingly, the, the spirits in her book, the fairies or the land spirits, they all shapeshift like humans change clothes. They they have a shape that they that is their native shape but it it sort they're fluid so they don't stay in exactly the same shape so she describes uh, a rabbit spirit and she's somewhat human looking she's somewhat humanoid but she's like a rabbit and you know in one second she looks like a jackrabbit and then the next second she looks mostly like a really thin human girl with sort bunny of ears <laughs> and big bunny eyes. And then she just, she, she shifts again. And that's, I, I always liked that. And I thought that one was, was a really, really good story. Um, let's see. I have, Oh, and witches and witchcraft. So I was I've I was fascinated with witches and witchcraft and yes I did have a copy of Charles Leland's The Gospel of Aradia uh I had contact with it I I didn't have my copy of it a friend of mine had a copy and that's part of what made me want to become a witch but also Erica Jong's book Witches which is an art book came out at around the same time that uh, Brian Froud's fairy came out. And you can't, again, you can't talk about fairies without talking about Brian Froud. So, so amazing. And I, I think that my idea of what fairies look like has been forever imprinted on Froud and Alan Lee's work. Yeah. Because it, it, (laughs) They all have the spindly fingers and long noses and 
And I just, I don't know if I could, I, maybe it's like the wish, wishful thinking little child in me still from when I first encountered these books, but I swear that man is painting them from life. Oh, I think he is. I've always thought that. Now I was, I was 10 or 11 when it came out. So, you know, but it, that, that idea never went away. You know, I, I always thought that he saw them and then drew them and then painted them. Uh, much like fairies, witches had illustrations that were very evocative. It was by, uh, his name was Joseph Smith, but I'm pretty sure he's not the same Joseph Smith that started the Mormon church. I think he's probably a different guy. Um, there's an awful lot of naked ladies in it and there's no magic underwear. So, and you know. But it was a very gothy sort of look at witchcraft, and it's very much the folkloric witchcraft that, you know, you see in European and, and early American folklore. Kind of like uh, the movie, the movie The Witch. That yeah. Is wonderful. Uh, and then uh, there was this really trashy paperback book that my mother had, and it had the best cover art ever it was the very first cover art by Rowena Morrill and she became very famous as a fantasy cover artist uh, she was working around the same time as both Frazetta and uh, Boris Viejo uh, so she she those three you know you, you always looked at the covers and that's what would draw you as if it was a Boris or a Frazetta or a Rowena, and that you, you figured it was good if it had one of those three people on you know, who did the art. But this was her very first cover, and man, was it like a thing. The name of the book is Isabel, and it is based on the story and the confessions made by a Scottish witch named Isabel Gowdy, which is a great name. It's a wonderful name. Um, and she was one of the few witches who gave testimony in a trial without being subjected to torture. She did not have to be tortured to confess. Now, this makes you go, well, now, wait a minute. Was she just putting them on? Was she telling them the truth? Was she actually doing these things or was she making it up as she went along because it was funny <laughs> because, you know, she figured she was going to die anyway. So might as well tell him a really good story. Who knows? But this, this book is very loosely based on her testimony and it's by Jane Parkhurst. And it's really expensive to get a copy of it, even though it only came out in paperback. Uh, partly because of the, the, the cover art, which had a naked woman uh, with red hair from the back, kneeling, holding up a bowl to none other than Satan. And Satan is this dude in, you know, with black goat horns and his skin is black and he's got this black curly hair. And, you know, I mean, he was very heavy metal. He was heavy metal, like, you know, Satan. He was very, very heavy metal. And uh, I had to read it. You know, my mom tried to hide it from me in the, in the closet. Seriously, 
she thought I didn't go into that, but I did. Um, and so, of course, I read it. I devoured it. It is the worst book in the world. It's it's terrible, but that made me go and and get the books that scholars had written about her testimony. So I found out about her that way. And it's interesting. She talks a lot about dealing not with Satan or the man in black, as she called him. Then, of course, in my head, it was it was Johnny Cash was hanging out with the red haired witch <laughs> in Scotland in the 16th century uh, and uh, mixing metaphors all all around. She dealt with the queen and king of fairy. And so she had and all of the people in her coven had all of the women had a fairy familiar who was their own. And I thought that was really interesting. And that, again, goes back to folklore where witches and fairies are kind of, you know, they work together in, at least in Scotland and uh, Northern Europe. So yeah. I thought that was interesting. And that those, those, those books really pretty much sealed it for me that, you know, I wanted to be that lady on that, that cover of that book. Not necessarily for the Satan part, but I wanted the long red hair and, you know, I wanted to be not afraid of people and just, you know, would tell them, well, this is what I do. Boom. <laughs> I'm not going to be ashamed of it. I have a crappy husband and that's what I do. There you go. Boom. So, <laughs> all the trouble that I get into, now you know why. It was because of this this terrible book. I had... A somewhat different. I had Tamora Pierce for magic. Yes, yeah, she had. She wasn't writing when I was a kid. I had Tamora Pierce, and I had um, Diana Wynne Jones, who incident who wrote Howl's Moving Castle, which the Miyazaki movie is based on. Um, and in both of those, there's the the very less so in Diana Wynne Jones, but in um, Tamora Pierce's multiple book series, magic is, there's two kinds of magic. There's the gift, and then there's wild magics. And the gift is what you would standardly think of as a fantasy series type magic. You make potions, you charm things, you can throw fire, you can heal, you can do all these things. And wild magics are tied to physical things like animals or a craft, or it, it, it's basically the innate power of materials that you're working with, with your own innate power that has a resonance between those things. Um, and so that got me really interested in, you know, just paying attention. I was already an animist, so I was already paying attention to, like, trying to discern the innate natures of things, and pay attention to the the fire that was in everything. And so as a kid, I was just like, this makes perfect sense. So I would it those books taught me how to meditate mm -hmm. and how to, you know, basically use that to try and find my own innate like sense of self, like what you I guess could call a chakra. It's not mm -hmm. what the books called them. They just called them your sense of self. But Diana Wynne-Jones, on the other hand, 
rolled with a sense of magic that was a lot less organized and a lot more chaotic. Mm-hmm. Um, much more akin to Terry Pratchett's views of magic, um, which is, I like to think of it as the Schmendrick system, um, which is from another wonderful book and wonderful movie that was one of my favorite movies as a small child because my mother could not watch the Care Bears anymore and was <laughs> like, no, actually, we're going to rent The Last Unicorn and you're going to watch it. And I loved it. Yep. Um, and, and then that she watched it over and over, which is much better than watching the Care Bears over and over. Um, and that's by Peter S. Beagle. And it's awesome. You should also read Taz- Tasman. Tasman. I was going to say, I'm my ideas my ideas of uh, ghosts come from Tamsin, which is also by Peter S. Beagle, and one of his short stories, A Fine and Private Place, which is also mm-hmm. about ghosts. And is excellent. But um, Schmendrick is the magician in The Last Unicorn, and he's a terrible magician. Yeah. He is so bad at it. He's part of a traveling show, and he's an awful musician, or musician, <laughs> magician. Um, he's great at sleight of hand and, like, tricks, but he can't do actual magic, even though he has the ability to do magic, until he finally just quits trying to do it with spells and quits trying to do it right and just literally goes, magic, do as you will. And then he turns a unicorn into a human woman to save her. Yeah. And he's like, oh, dear. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, and interestingly, that that is uh, how I've always done magic. You will, I always leave room in there for the universe to do as it will. Yeah. And, he basically goes, for the save good of her. all, do as you will. Yeah, yeah, save her and do it however you need to do it to make it happen. Yeah. And, and then he channeled that energy through himself and added his own energy. And boom, there she was. And she wasn't real happy with that. Uh, she didn't. It, it was very sad. Um, it all turns out well in the end, mostly mm-hmm. in a bittersweet sort of way. Yeah. But I think that conception of magic really sunk in like the idea that magic isn't just, you know, magic isn't like a ritual vending machine. Yeah. Like you don't like, yes, obviously like you, the point of a spell, the point of magical items and tools is to act as a focus for your will and for what you want. And all of that can amplify things and help you with things. But for me, what really stuck with me is the the roots of magic is that it is this capricious, changeable, fundamental force in the universe mm-hmm. that you don't so much control as work with it if it feels like it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's mercurial. It it is changeable. It is, it is like the other. the The other and magic are intimately entwined, because they both have to do with consciousness, and the moving of consciousness, the raising of energy, and the movement of energy in and out 
of different vessels, meaning different bodies, humans, animals, plants, uh, spirits, all, all of these things that are part of a whole. I'm, a, I'm very much an, an animist and a monist. I believe that everything is part of one whole thing and that all of the universe is one whole being that has been split apart into countless millions and billions. I sound like Carl Sagan now for all you older people who know who that is. Um, all of these different things and forms and shapes that consciousness then settles into. And that's, that's how I see it. And yeah, that's, that's how Peter Beagle, Peter Beagle expresses it. And then there's Terry Pratchett, which I did not read any Terry Pratchett for years and years and years. I, I don't bullied know why. you into reading it. I don't I know why. I bullied you into it because dad you doesn't did. like it. And I, you I, were I, prejudiced. I, I, <laughs> I don't know. I just wouldn't read it. So finally she bought me the the books wh whichever part of the discworld i got series you it is. i got you weird sisters i got you the first of the witches series and was like read this and then i read it and i was like oh i see why you wanted me to read it because th that's how we do magic <laughs> which is to like, say yes. we, we don't do magic very damned often <laughs> because you Most don't of need the time to. you don't need to yeah most you don't of the need time, to. people need somebody to listen or they need soup. Yeah. Like, yeah. honestly, that's, or they need to take a walk with you or they need help with their garden or help moving or just a piece of advice or they just need a sandwich. Like, that is the majority of the time you don't need magic to fix things in people's lives or your yeah. life. Yeah. It, it's... It sounds like a very lazy witch's way of doing things, but really you don't need to, to, once you know how to do magic, once you have practiced it enough to know how it works, then you don't need to be doing it all the time because practicing is how you understand how the energy moves and how it flows. And that's fine. I mean, and I'm lazy. You're not lazy. I'm lazy. Like I'll cop to it. <laughs> I'm the I'm laziest witch of them all. I'm relatively lazy and I'm fairly <laughs> careful because I had a person ask one time, one time they wanted to meet some, someone, they wanted to meet a man in Scotland with red hair because she read too many Outlander books. And so I said, I'll think on it. And I did. And it went so horribly. It worked. She did meet him. Not the, the actor or anybody. This was years before it was a TV show. Um, but she met a very tall, very handsome, red-haired man who walked into a pub that she was in. And it's not a pub he ever walked into normally. And he struck up a conversation with her because they were both tall and red-haired. So who else are you going to talk to in a pub? And they hit it off and there was a very, very, very torrid romance. And I got a phone call from Scotland and talked to this guy and he was like, so you're the reason we met. And I'm like, well, sort of, maybe, kind of. I just visualized it happening over and over and over. And so it did happen, but it ended badly. 
So I'm not doing that again. I don't care how much Never somebody wants to meet a specific love. person. Yeah. Did none of us learn that. from practical magic. <laughs> Speaking well, that of, was, of movies. <laughs> that wasn't love. That was a case of, you know, when is a good time to perform necromancy? Never. <laughs> not literal necromancy, ladies. Don't do that. It was all started by love spell. That's true. It was. It was. It was all started by a love spell. Never mess with love. Never mess with other people's money. And if you're going to curse somebody, make sure they really deserve it. <laughs> right. Yeah. And try not to burn down the whole town. I <laughs> refuse to discuss this. <laughs> All right. We, we, it was one we're done time. Now. We're done now. And we're keeping it that way it once. Was one time. Once. Yeah. So. And it wasn't the whole town. <laughs> no, it wasn't. We have a good fire department. They, they oh my put, goodness. The, put the kibosh on that. So that was good. But yeah. Um, so. Yeah. So Mor Morgana made me read these books. And, and yeah, I think that that that's probably been one of the most formative influential books I've read recently on witchcraft that and again it's fiction although I will say Gerald Gardner wrote his concepts of witchcraft he was the person who founded Wicca he wrote his concepts of witchcraft first as in a fiction. terrible 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 novel if you ever try to read it called High Magic's Aid way back in the day, I think in the 40s. I think that was before he wrote his books on Wicca in the 50s. Yes, it was. So, and yeah, I think it was in the 40s. I love that the founder of a religion first released How to Do Magic as a novel and as fiction because he didn't think the world was ready for it as nonfiction. That's exactly what he said. Yeah. And I think it was quite intelligent because, again, there's no reason that it wouldn't still influence people, that it wouldn't still have people think about it. It wouldn't have still, like, it, it's the contagiousness of the imagination. Like, our brains get a hold of concepts and get a hold of ideas and we just run with them. Or at least mm -hmm. I do. Yeah, no, I think that's that's how all imaginations work. If if it's a really good book, you get absorbed in it and your brain just goes gallivanting off. Because I really think that books are co-created to lift a uh, concept that uh, Greg Bishop talks about all the time for UFOs. Uh, but it's been stretched out and used for lots of paranormal phenomena whereby there is something that you're you're experiencing but you're also shaping it in your own mind because of the images that are stored in your mind exactly well that's how a book works you know the author does half of it they do half the work they write it down and then your brain has to plug into it and you know imagine it as it goes along and nobody imagines the exact same faces of the main characters the same exactly. way. Nobody imagines what the images in the book look exactly the same way. And I think yeah. that is the link between 
the consumption of fiction by using our imaginations and the other as I think it's a practice run. Mm, yeah. I think people with lots of imaginative ability, people who consume a lot of books, people who consume a lot of other media, people who are artists, people who write, anyone with a high amount of imagination who uses their imagination a lot, I think has an easier time of entering into co-creation with the other. I think that's absolutely 100% the truth. Just to like tie this back to it being, you know, a paranormal podcast and not just us like geeking out about books. Like, <laughs> yeah, well, there is that, you know, and I, pref as much as we, we are sort of talking about other media as well, although I have a feeling we're going to have to do a second in this series yeah. where we talk about TV shows and movies because we got so into the books that we just... Big surprise. Yeah. We're book nerds. Yeah, we are such literary nerds um, and culinary nerds. So, you know, we get them both. Uh, and I culinary that, book nerds. And, oh my God, the cookbooks. I have to go through my cookbooks again and, and get rid of some. Anyway, uh, I don't even remember what I was saying, but Sorry. it's okay. I, I do think that I think that your conception that we're doing a trial run for dealing with the other, we're filling up our, our memory bank with images from books that we've read from poetry that we have read. We are filling our, our memory up with words that we have read or read aloud or heard aloud. And so that gives us a whole packed full consciousness for the other to play with. Yeah. Because I've, I've made the metaphor that our brains are like a wardrobe for them. You know, they, they can reach in, riffle around and, and pick out what they want to want us to see or we're part of it. And our brain kind of throws the fairy costume before it throws the uh, alien one. And so, you know, they put that on in my case. That's why I've generally most of the time never seen anything like a gray alien. I have, but it's not an often thing I see much weirder stuff most of the time or fairy like stuff. So that's, I think that's what's going on. I think it's, it's taking images from our head. And if you read a lot of books and you, you stimulate your imagination, if you draw, if you write, if you sing or play music and do it well, you are doing magic. And do, in doing that, you are essentially giving the other raw material to work with yeah and i think that you can like imagine being whatever the hell the other is like during paleolithic era like you've got all this rich folkloric tradition happening probably probably and then you know fast forward and all of a sudden you're in renaissance florence <laughs> yeah <laughs> And you're like, whoa, there's so, many, there's so many new archetypes. There's so yes. many new faces. There's so many new ways I can dance around. I mean, now, I mean, and then f go run over to Shakespeare and go, what? 
and just keep fast forwarding and we just keep building like yes we have basic archetypes and tropes that we continually play with but we are also always coming up with new stories and new art and new things and I sometimes wonder if that's not why we're getting more and more complex representations of the other and why it hasn't fragmented so much like for a long time everybody saw flying silver discs and then we saw a bunch of weird stuff and now we see light globes and what are we going to see next yeah and is does it have to do with the fact that there are so damn many more of us and we all have such a different conception. We all have a completely different brain. We all see the world in a different way. And how are they all just putting on different costumes from all these different people? And are they playing around in our imaginations? And Who having knows? a good old time? I would. You know, if I was an interdimensional other entity, I would be like, yeah, I want to be Titania one day and Freddy Krueger the next and also just for a little bit of time in the afternoon I feel like being Wishbone the dog like I would love to do all of that I want to go to space I want to go 20,000 leagues under the sea yeah I think it's I think it's fascinating that you know the 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 tradition of fairies always having to do with artists always having to do with poets, bards, uh, musicians, always having to do with writers. And writers talk about their muses. I was well, about to say, go back to the muses, like all the way to ancient Greece. Yeah. It, that could be one of the, one of the faces of the other is the, the, the people, the, the other that hangs around with the imaginative people who make, literature and art and music and move now movies maybe we're uh, their art maybe the maybe the muses are the artists of the other world and we're their artistic creation they that's why they nurture artists that is their art the artist is their medium yeah okay you just you just like basically stated a point from the novel your your stepfather and I have been writing for 30 years so sorry is my psychic on <laughs> your psychic is very much on um but that's okay the the idea of a muse is as using a human as a three dimension a four five dimensional sculpture is you know and basically creating helping to create their life and themselves and their art by, you know, whatever means they use. I'm not going to go into it because then I'll spoil my own, you know, story that I haven't published yet. So. Sorry. That's okay. That's okay. <laughs> the look on your face was great. I was like, oh, dear. <laughs> yeah, you you guys can't see it, but I know I must have made the the frowny face. Uh, because I didn't expect that. I also have heard nothing about this novel at all. I just know that they're writing it. Sorry. And have been forever. <laughs> yeah, it's so different. It's so vastly different than the than the stories that we were telling and writing down when you were a kid that you, you don't actually know quite what's going on. 
So there's that. And then I guess we could talk about tulpamancy, but we're not gonna. No. We're gonna talk about that later. Yeah, and that, with, that could with be guests. its own episode. Yes. Um, yes. Should we wrap or? Yeah, unless you have, I think you said it. I think you yeah. said the things. I think you did a good job. Um, I, I think I, I just sort of babbled, but you, you got the points right out there and boom, there they were. Uh, I, I will put the book authors and titles in the, in the, uh, show notes as and we always do. We're sorry. You may have to hasten to a library. Yeah. <laughs> you haven't run, run off to a library or, or the used book, uh, uh, used book store in your town and pick up some of these. Uh, let's see. I think that's it yeah we're gonna have to do another episode about film <laughs> film and tv shows because you know i said the twilight zone we said star trek but we didn't go into and we haven't even touched the x-files oh my lord no and and i just rewatched the whole series up to uh season eight yeah then you know once Mulder wandered off the kid was just like, nah, um, <laughs> nah, I don't, mm, nah, I don't like it. Uh, so I've watched the whole thing. Now he's gone back and he's watching different episodes from different seasons, just sort of randomly. And so he's absorbing it in his own very um, eclectic way. So it's interesting to see what stories he goes after as opposed to what, I went after and it does look like that he agrees with me that the monster of the week stories are in general they they suit the time that we are existing in now much better yeah than the overarching uh plot the the hybrid alien business yeah <sighs> But yeah, we have to talk about the X-Files. We have to. And we, we didn't about... even talk about Graham Joyce. Oh my God. We didn't. We That's, we're just going to have to do an episode about Graham Joyce. <laughs> yeah. he Because yeah. we keep meaning to. We'll put it on the schedule. Uh, <laughs> I will at least, you know, give the hint before we, we go who Graham Joyce was. He was a really, really phenomenal uh magical realist fantasy writer yeah because he wasn't high fantasy no he he was writing about magical things in a world that we can recognize as our own so yeah i would say magical realism is kind of the this style his style agreed and uh, he was really, really uh, an amazing writer. And he died fairly recently at the age of 59, which is sad. Which is because terribly sad. Because I really like his books. Enough to do a whole episode about them. So unless Morgana has something else very, very fascinating to pop out and say. <laughs> so, so, still sorry. <laughs> no, no, that's not even what I was talking about. I was talking about the whole idea that we are, well, okay, yeah. So that was what I was talking about, that we are the other's art. 
anyway, uh, <laughs> I'll tell Zach that we don't even have to bother writing it now. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we don't need to. Uh, Our just, child has spoiled it. <laughs> it's just a, you know, whatever. Uh, you should still write it. We we will because that's okay. Yes, that is a part of it, but it's not all of it. Anyway, so thank you for listening to us blather about books for like this whole time. We're such nerds. Yeah. Thank you for coming to our nerd fest. <laughs> yes, thank you for for putting up with our nerd fest. Thank you for listening to the nerd fest, and hope you have a good week because this is this week's episode. So, and of course, you know. They don't even know which this week this is. So it, we could have wonderful. recorded this a month ago. We could have. We could be recording this in the future. Who knows? <laughs> exactly. All right. Thank you, everyone. Have a, a good week. And keep your eyes on the skies because we have been seeing UFOs over here yes, in Athens. Yes, we have. And it's, uh, it's a family thing because Fox has seen some too. So And got a photograph of one. So here we are. Keep your eyes on the skies, people. Well, that's all for this week's episode of the Six Degrees of John Keel podcast. If you have any questions or thoughts about the podcast or would like to come and talk about your experiences of the paranormal, you can contact us at 6djk67 at gmail.com. We promise to even answer you, and we are always happy to hear from you. Thank you. Thank you.